Well, that's the new musical from DreamWorks, The Prince of Egypt, and it's showing in New York and in the West End of London. In fact, John and Emily are not here today. They've gone down and went to watch that last night in the West End. Rob and I were debating whether we should just act that out and sing it ourselves. <laughs> weren't sure, but in the end, it went for the DVDs, then the promo. Who knew that here at Regent we would be so on trend that our Bible teaching series would be mirroring the West End productions? That's just fantastic, isn't it? We're, we're following the same subject as Spielberg blockbusters and his musical. Well, over the last few weeks here at Regent, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, and we've been studying the life of Moses, who's the chief character in that book, and he wrote the book himself. We've followed his life from his birth as an Israelite, and you've kind of well, seen some of those bits uh, in that promo there. His birth as an Israelite, to his adoption into the Egyptian royal family, um, he became a prince of Egypt, he was adopted alongside Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's half-brother, and then his forced exile, 40 years in the desert in Midian, where he lived as a shepherd, and then to his encounter with God at the age of 80. So if you're 80 or over, God's not done with you, there is a life. God might speak to you in a burning bush, may not, but he spoke to Moses, and Moses at 80, his life was transformed, and he was called by God to go back to Egypt to free the people of Israel, his people, his natural people, God's people, and free them from slavery and lead them out into the promised land. Today we're going to look at Moses' big encounters with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, by this time, is his, is his kind of nephew by uh, adoption, if you like, um, Moses' half-brother's son. And so he's going back to, to see his nephew. And Moses, acting on God's instructions, has gone back to Egypt. And he'd gone to demand that Pharaoh would release the Israelites, the children of Israel, the, the Hebrews. And Pharaoh is faced with a choice. He can either do what God commands him to do through Moses, he can let God's chosen people go, or he can follow his own interests, his own desires, and he can reject God and keep the Israelites as his slaves. And that's the big battle, that's the big choice that Pharaoh faces. So we're going to read, we'll look at four chapters this morning. We're not going to read the whole thing, we'll be here uh, till later on this afternoon, but we are going to just pick up a few excerpts. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn, you want to turn to Exodus chapter 6, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 6, and we're going to read from 28 through to uh, verse 13 of chapter 7. And we're going to just pause for a moment and then we're going to pick up some more as we go through. So Exodus chapter 6, 28 down to verse 13 of chapter 7. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I will multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. 
Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So this is the, the first passage I've read this morning. is this first great encounter between Pharaoh and Egypt out of a total of 11 with some pretty amazing things, some miraculous things that happen. In this first encounter, Moses and Aaron go, and they go to see Pharaoh, and they're going to tell him, let my people go. Let the Israelites leave so they can worship God. And to demonstrate that they should do this, to demonstrate that Pharaoh should listen to them, should take notice of them, Aaron threw down Moses' shepherd's staff, which God had spoken to him and told him to do, and it became a snake, just as it did when he appeared to him there in the burning bush. Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers, which you're probably not thinking of as magicians in terms of like magic tricks, these are occult, demonic uh, sorcerers and doing all kind of occult, demonic kind of stuff. And they are able to replicate what uh, Aaron does. And they're able to throw their staffs down on the ground and their staffs become snakes. But then Aaron's staff swallowed up the Egyptian snakes, demonstrating God's power over them. Now, if we'd seen something like that happen in front of us, it's obviously not normal, that is a miracle. Miracles don't normally happen, they're out of the ordinary. I think we'd have been pretty amazed, we'd have been pretty staggered and just amazed to see exactly what was going on. But Pharaoh makes his first choice and he refuses to listen, he rejects God's power and he says no. And so then Moses and Aaron introduce a series of ten plagues that God sends on Egypt. There's a plague of blood. Moses and Aaron turn the Nile into blood. And we're going to read that from chapter 7, verse 14 to 24. So quick Bible only, you can, you can uh, uh, follow, just listen. 14 to 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. All the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And the, all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Then there's this amazing plague of frogs. So having ignored the plague of blood, all the water turns into uh, blood. There's a plague of frogs and these frogs are absolutely everywhere. They just kind of take over the whole country. But Pharaoh's sorcerers, his magicians, his, his kind of, uh, these evil guys are able to do and able to replicate the same thing again. Then there's a plague of gnats. So we're going to read about that from chapter 8 verse 16 to 19, chapter 8, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. 
and the gnats were on men and animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. And this is now the real turning point in the narrative, in the account. Pharaoh's sorcerers had been able to replicate whatever uh, Moses and Aaron did up until this point, but at this point, they're now unable to do the same thing. And then we get down to chapter 8, verse 20. Pick up the, the, uh, the narrative there. Chapter 8, verse 20. And we're going to read from verse uh, 20 to 32. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the house of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord, our, our God, will be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. And tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his peoples. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people, not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. And in this plague, God shows that he has the power to bring a plague on the Egyptians, but not to bring a plague on the Israelites in the bit of Egypt that they were living in. And then in chapter 9, we get this plague on the livestock, all the Egyptian livestock, but not the Israelite animals. Then there's the sixth plague, which is a plague of boils. The Egyptians are covered in painful boils. Then there's a plague of hail. This terrible hailstorm destroys all the crops that were there. And then the eighth plague was a plague of locusts. And the, the locusts came through the land, as it still happens today. The locusts came through and ate up everything that hadn't already been destroyed by the hail. And then finally, there is this plague of darkness. This plague of darkness that lasts for three days. And then after that, we get to this tenth plague. The death of the firstborn. And we're going to look at that next week. We're just going to today look at these first nine. Next week we'll look at the, the plague of the death of the firstborn across the land. Before each plague, Pharaoh was told to let the Israelites go. God spoke through Moses, through Aaron, and told him. But each time he did that, Pharaoh refused. And in, it, and in response to his refusal to obey God, God then brought another plague on Egypt. So Pharaoh refused, God says, okay, and then he brought another plague. And then Pharaoh would agree, and he would say, okay, the people can go, and then he would change his mind as soon as the plague had gone. Now, if you look at your outlines, if you pick your outlines up on the back of the uh, bulletin, there's an outline of today's uh, message. There are three times when God specifically speaks to Pharaoh through Moses and, and through Aaron about who he was. Three times when he specifically speaks. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. 
With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. You will know that I am the Lord. God speaks to Pharaoh, and he says, when you see my plan, when you see this happen, you will know that there is only one God, and that I am he. The title Lord here, we looked at this a few weeks ago, is, is the word Yahweh in Hebrew, and it basically means I am. There is only me. I am the one who exists. I always have existed. I always will exist. I am just self-existent. I am God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And when the Nile is changed into blood, Pharaoh sees that God is all-powerful. He is God. There isn't any other God. There is just God, the God that's revealed himself. And you think that in response to what he sees, when you see all the, all the Nile changed blood, you think Pharaoh would get it and then would uh, submit to God. But he doesn't. Then as the plagues continue, God speaks to him again specifically. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. So what's the purpose of this plague? So that you will know that I, the Lord, the self-existent one, the eternal one, you will know that I am in this land. As God brings the plague of flies on Egypt, the Israelites aren't affected. The Egyptians are, but the Israelites aren't. And God's great power and presence is displayed to Pharaoh, and the only person he should be listening to is God. Only God can do these things. See, the Egyptians believed, as most people did in those days, that there were loads of gods, and each god had his own little territory and regional power and all the rest of it. But those gods had limited power, so you had to speak to this god to deal with this and this and so on. And God is saying, look, I am in the land. I am everywhere. There is only one God, it's me. And by this you'll know that I am in this land. I'm not restricted to where Moses is. I'm not restricted to where my people are. I'm not restricted. I am everywhere because ultimately there is only one God, and it's me. God is not limited by territory. He's not limited by Moses' presence. He's present everywhere. Then look at 9, uh, 13 to 14. The third time God specifically speaks to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so that they may worship you and against your officials and your people. So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Not just Egypt, not just this land, but in all the earth. And as the plagues build and they gather in severity, God speaks to Pharaoh this third time and he says, I'm going to move in great power so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Three times God speaks to Pharaoh to show that firstly, only he was God. There isn't any other God. Only he was God, Yahweh, the Lord. Only he was present everywhere both in Egypt and Goshen, and only he was all-powerful. No one like me, says God, in all the earth, there is no God except for me. And God's purpose in doing that was to try to help Pharaoh with his choices. God was showing Pharaoh that he needed to submit to him and obey him. He was a created being. God is the creator. And that every one of us had to submit to God as our creator. God looks for us to submit to him. But despite these nine plagues, these nine opportunities that Pharaoh gets to respond to God's revelation through Aaron, through Moses, every single time he refuses to, he rejects God. And you know, like Pharaoh, we face choices about what we do with life, what we do with God's revelation to us every day. We may not have the kind of decisions that Pharaoh has to make. We're not world leaders, thank goodness for that. None of us have to make those big, big choices. But we do nevertheless have to make choices and decisions 
about the revelation, about the information that God has revealed to us on a daily basis. How will we respond to God? God has revealed himself to us in the Bible, primarily, as the only God. He's revealed himself to us as the God who is present everywhere. We believe by faith that God is present here this morning. But we also believe he's present in churches in New Zealand and in China and South America. He's present everywhere. And he's present throughout the universe because he created it all. He spoke it all into being. The Bible reveals God as the all-powerful God who is not limited. Speaks and the, the whole universe comes into being. He's revealed himself to us as our creator. We're not the product of billions of years of slime evolved. God spoke and we are brought into being. He has created us in his image. He's revealed himself to us as the one who gives us life. He is our sustainer every day. The reason I'm still alive is because God has given me life and breath. And he's revealed himself to us as being a holy God. A God that is totally pure, is totally sinless, and in fact hates sin. And is the complete opposite. He's totally righteous and holy. And he's revealed himself as the God who is the very definition of love. The Bible says God is love. God is love. That's how God has revealed himself to us. And the Bible says God didn't just say he was love. He's demonstrated his own love for us. For us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's ultimate way of expressing who he is is to, send, is to come in the person of Jesus and die on a cross. As we remember this morning, with bread and wine. And Jesus there, God come in, 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 in human form, fully human, yet still fully God. Hung there on that cross and took... Your place took my place. Absorbed the wrath of a holy God against your sin and my sin. God is love. He loves us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. That is real love. And he's revealed himself to, to us as the one who we will stand before one day. When our lives are over and we will give an account for how we've lived. And what we've done with the revelation of God to us. What, we, what have we done with Jesus? When we grasp even just a little bit who God is and what God has done, then it should transform how we live. Write this on your outline. My response to my knowledge of who God is and what he's done should mean that I just surrender my whole life to him. When we really get our heads around, or even just a little bit about who God is and what he's done for us, that should mean that our lives are transformed. That we say, well, I am just one of your created beings. Here I am. How can I live for you? The only rational response is to give him our lives. Why would we choose to live in opposition to God? Why would we stand against God? And in choosing to live life God's way, which of course is always the best way, we determine to let God affect every choice we make. Let me ask you a question today, not to answer out loud, but just for you to think through. Who is it? Or what is it that influences the choices you make every day? We all make choices, don't we, from some which are just insignificant about whether I'm going to have two cups of coffee or one cup of coffee or whatever, all the way up to some really significant things that we make choices over. What is it, who is it that influences the choices that you make, that I make, day in and day out? Is it our knowledge of God, who he is, what he's done, or is it someone, or is it something else? Pharaoh was faced with the choice of whether to listen to God or whether to reject God and refuse to submit to him. And the problem with Pharaoh was that he was receiving conflicting advice. 
Moses and Aaron were speaking, but then he was getting information from these sorcerers, these guys who were tapping into demonic, satanic power to, to perform miracles. Look at verse 22 of chapter 7. Moses turned the water in the Nile into blood, but then we read, But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron. So on the one hand, Pharaoh is seeing God at work. He's seeing God's amazing power working through Moses and Aaron, <coughs> seeking to persuade him to make the right choices. And then on the other hand, Pharaoh is seeing Satan's power at work through these sorcerers, these magicians. <coughs> Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to, through the power of demons, through the, the power of the demonic, the occult, they were able to replicate some of them, not all, but some of the miracles that Moses and Aaron performed. And Satan's power demonstrated through Pharaoh's sources, confuses Pharaoh. He's getting conflicting information. And you know, that's what happens to us. We know the truth about God. It's been revealed to us in the Bible. We know how God wants us to live. He tells us. And that we know that the, that the principal way in which we find these truths is by reading the Bible. That's how we find the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth. And it will set you free. How do we know the truth? We know the truth by reading the Bible. But the last thing that Satan wants anybody doing is to follow Jesus and his truth. So what does he do? Well, Satan tells us lies. Look at what Jesus says in John 8, verse 44 about Satan. Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we are receiving information that tries to persuade us to live differently to what God says and what God asks us to do in the Bible, what we're hearing, what we're listening to, comes, has its very root in Satan. Every lie comes originally from Satan. He's the father of lies, the originator of lies. The Bible says that Satan tries to lead non-Christians away from the truth that they're hearing about Jesus the truth that they're hearing about God. Look at what it says. Satan, who is the God of this world, God with a small g, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Just as Satan spiritually blinded Pharaoh and deceived him and led him astray, through the power that he, Satan gave to these sorcerers, so he does the same today to people who don't believe in God. But it's not just people who don't believe in God that can be deceived by Satan. Look at what Paul says to Christians, those who do believe in God, who trusted in him, who have given their lives to him. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul says this, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, of course it was Satan in the form of serpent, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How was Eve led astray? How was she deceived? By a lie from Satan. You won't die if you eat this fruit, he said. He lied, he deceived her. Now how are we led astray? How are we deceived? We are led astray by lies from Satan. The trouble with deception is that we, by the very nature, we don't realise that we're being deceived. If I'm deceiving you, well, I'm deceiving you. You don't realise I'm deceiving you. That's what deception is. And so often we are being deceived by Satan without even realising it. Every moment, every day, we're faced with choices, some big, some small. Some will have great consequences. 
And the question we face is, what do we allow to influence and direct our choices? What will drive those choices that we make? How will we arrive at the key decisions, small and great, in our lives? Will we do that uh, fueled by and inspired by the truth that's in the Bible, the truth that sets us free? Or will we allow other influences to lead us astray and deceive us? Now, the devil uses, loves to use all kinds of methods to influence. He tries to get us to follow our friends. Our family, TV, adverts, the media, social media, even our own feelings. And all of those things are okay so long as they are in line with what the Bible teaches. But when they're not, then we're at risk of being deceived. Here's a quote for you. The Christian life is about making right choices based upon what we know is true and not how we feel. The Christian life is, based, it is about making right choices based upon what we know is true and not how we feel. Before Claire and I were married, we went through some marriage class, uh, classes, preparation classes with one of the elders in our home church in London. And I remember him saying that there would be times when we would wake up and we wouldn't feel like being married. We just perhaps wouldn't always feel like seeing through all our vows that day. And that happens, doesn't it? You don't always wake up thinking, yeah, I just can't wait to sacrifice for my wife today. Sometimes we wake up not just feeling that. <clears throat> and John said to us, look, you know, you won't always feel like that, but in those moments, we're to remember the truth that we are married. So whether we feel like it or not, we choose to live by what we know is true and not by how we feel. Our feelings will come and go based on how much caffeine I've had, how, many, how much sleep I've had, how much shit, all that kind of stuff, and all the other things that are going on in my life. My feelings come and go, but the reality is I've got a wedding certificate which says I am married to Claire. So I live by the truth of what I know, not always how I feel. Of course I never, I always feel like I always want to. Let Claire know that, I know she's sick today, but let her know that. Um, but we need to come back in those moments, it's about saying, well, what is actually true? I don't feel like this today, but what is true? And I make my choice based upon that truth. So how do we make right choices? If we're, this morning, if we're followers of Jesus, how do we make those right choices? Well, we need to write this down, we need to make our choices directed by what God says in the Bible. The world tells us, the world around us through all sorts of stuff coming at us that we don't even realise is just bombarding us through what, what, what we watch, what we listen to, what we read, who we read, all, this, all the time. The world bombards us and it tells us if it feels good, do it. But the problem is that feelings come and go. And how we feel from one day to the next can change. Situations change. Cultural values change. But the one thing that remains constant is God what he's revealed to us about himself and what he says to us in the Bible. The Bible says Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today and forever. So this world, how we feel, all the stuff around us will come and go and change up and down. But Jesus is constant. God is constant. Now I want to challenge you this morning. What choices are you facing this morning? You're probably not facing a major decision as to whether you're going to let a whole nation of people leave your country. None of us are in that position. But we will make decisions that are important. Every one of us make key choices and decisions every day. What decisions are you going to have to make this week, or this month, or this year? And will you make those decisions in the light of who God is? Will you make those decisions in the light of what God's Word, the Bible says, the revelation that He's given to us? Will we make those decisions with eternity in mind, knowing that this life is just the, the, the dress rehearsal, this is not a big thing, this is just the start? Will we live here now for a life that is over really quite quickly? Or will we make, choi and will we make choices that 
push God into second place. We make choices that put our own comfort, our own desires, our own plans and dreams before God. See, what we need to realise is that the choices that we make this week don't just affect our life this week. Some choices can affect our lives for the rest of our lives and indeed beyond the end of this life. Look at Exodus 28. After nine plagues, nine opportunities for Pharaoh to listen to God, to respond to God, to submit to God, he makes his final choice. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see me, my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. And he never did. Pharaoh came to a point where he said, no, I am going to reject God. Despite all that I've seen, I choose to reject God. And it rebounded on him. And we're going to see that over the next few weeks. But it would also affect him in eternity. It wouldn't just affect him right now, it would affect him forever. Let's look at Romans 14, up on the screen. <coughs> For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. One day, you will have to stand, I will have to stand before God, and you will bow down and confess and acknowledge to God that he is God, that he is Lord. And then we'll have to give an account for how we've lived whilst on this earth. The reality is that this life is just a dress rehearsal for the one that is to come. The choices we make, the choices I make this week, will have a direct outcome in the next life. And if we choose to reject God altogether, like Pharaoh did, and the Bible says that we are separated from God for all eternity. No more opportunities, no more second chances. Separated not only from God, but separated from all that is good. And if you choose to accept God in this life, then you have an eternity with God in heaven to look forward to. But even if you have accepted God, and many people here this morning I know have made that choice and have said, yeah, I want to live for God, I, I, I trust in Jesus, I'm putting my faith and my trust in Jesus. We can still make many, many wrong choices in this life. We can still make many wrong and false choices. Whether it's, uh, it can be in all sorts of kind of things. The Bible says that God will reward those who believe in him in direct relation to what they've done for him in this life. So how we have a relationship with God, how we get to heaven, how we spend eternity with him, is not through what we do, it's simply by putting our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us and trusting in him. But in addition to that, this is the amazing thing about God. He wants to reward us and bless us beyond just giving us eternal life. And he does that in relation and in response to how we live for him in this life. How I respond to God in this life directly affects the life to come. Whether it's in the choice of who I choose to have a relationship with, whether it's in the choice of who I choose to spend my time with this week, every single choice we make matters to God and is important to God. And the choices we make send a clear signal to God. They say one of two things. Either they say God is number one, or they say God is not number one. Maybe God isn't number anything. He's out of my life completely. Either they say that God is number one, or they say that God is not number one. He might be number two, or he might not be there at all. Can I challenge you this week? By the choices that you make to demonstrate to God to those around you, but most importantly to God himself, that he is number one. Don't do what Pharaoh did. Don't reject God. Whether we've already trusted in him or not, he continues to speak to us. 
And whatever God is saying to us, are we listening to him today? Proverbs 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. God wants us to put him first in everything. That comes first by, by admitting and confessing I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, I have sinned against you, and I need your salvation, I need your forgiveness. Thank you for dying for me on the cross, and I choose now to give my life to you. That's step one. Step two and three and four and five are steps that we take every day of ongoingly saying to God, I choose to live your way. I want to live by your truth. I want to choose your truth. I choose your way. The truth sets me free, and I want to go on being free in Jesus. <coughs> now you might be thinking, well, all of that's very well, but doesn't it say repeatedly in this passage that it was actually God who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Surely Pharaoh can't be blamed there. It can't be Pharaoh's fault if it's God who's hardened his heart. And if you read right through the whole account of uh, Moses and Pharaoh from Exodus 4, right the way through to chapter 14, it says 17 times that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that was despite seeing the miracles of God, it was despite God speaking to him directly through Moses and Aaron on a number of occasions, and on ten of those occasions we read that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three of those occasions we read Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and on four occasions we just read that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't blame it, it doesn't kind of attribute that to God or to Pharaoh. So was it Pharaoh's fault? Can we, can we hold Pharaoh to blame for this? If, if, it's, if, if God's doing this, is, is Pharaoh at fault, or was it really God's fault? Was Pharaoh really responsible for his own actions? Was God being fair? Is this fair on Pharaoh? Well, let's look at what Paul says in Romans 9. Paul says this, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So what on earth is all this about? Well, in Romans chapter 1, we read that every single human being has rejected God and has rejected the truth about God. We're all in that position, that's our kind of starting place. And what both Romans 1 and the passage here in Romans 9 teach us is that because every human being has rejected God and the truth about God, then God is entirely just and within his rights as God to say, okay, then on your heads be it. If that's the way you want to go, then like a boat along the river, I'll just push you away and you can go and you can, you can bear the, the fruit of your choices. God is restraining every human being in their desire to reject him and to live the way they want to, to some degree or other. God is constantly restraining evil all around us. The fact that we don't have complete anarchy, we don't have uncontrolled evil in the world, even though at times it, it does seem like that in some places, the fact that we don't is because God is restraining some people's evil. He's restraining their actions. He's having mercy on some people. But God would be, and it, entirely, it is entirely right and just to sometimes remove those restraints that in his mercy he places on some people and say, well, if that's the way you want to live, away you go and you will reap the consequences. And when he does that, those people move further and further away from God's sin, produces more sin, they move further and further away from the truth about God. It's not God that's at fault, it's them that's at fault. God is just in his mercy no longer restraining them. And that's what happened to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, like every human being, has rejected God and the truth about God. And so God in his wisdom chose no longer to restrain him. 
And so Pharaoh was allowed to actively pursue his own rejection of God, which included an ever-increasing rejection of God. That's what it means when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's not that Pharaoh had no choice or that God wasn't being fair on him. Every human being has rejected God, and so God will be entirely within his rights to leave us all just to face his justice and his judgment for our rejection of him. But God in his mercy chooses to have mercy on some people. First, in the sense that he restrains their sinful behaviour, and then secondly, in the sense that he gives people, he enables some people to have further opportunities to respond to him, further opportunities to respond to the good news that Jesus has died for them. And many of us are here today, many of us who are here this morning have experienced that. Despite our natural rejection of God, God in his mercy has allowed us to hear about his love and sending Jesus until we eventually responded. When the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, what it means is that God removed his restraints on Pharaoh and allowed him to go his own way. God doesn't harden anyone's heart that hasn't already hardened their own heart by rejecting him and the truth about him. And the Bible tells us every human being has rejected God in and of themselves. Pharaoh's first heart, sorry, Pharaoh first hardened his own heart as all human beings have done. And then God says, okay, away you go. If that's the way you want it, he removes his restraint on him and further hardening results. Knowing that Pharaoh would reject him, God allows this to follow through to its logical conclusion. And in doing so, God uses Pharaoh's sin, he turns bad into good to bring him glory, bring himself glory and achieve his purposes for the nation of Israel. Now the very fact that you are here today means that God is having mercy on you. He's giving you an opportunity to respond to him. Firstly, you've never done this before, by surrendering your life to him and saying, Oh Jesus, I want to live, I want to, I, I love you, thank you for dying for me. I, I, I'm a sinner and I need your help. What you do with that choice is of course up to you. Will you be like Pharaoh? Will you reject God? And so find the inevitable outcome of that is that your own heart is increasingly hardened. Or will you accept God and submit to him? as in his mercy he gives you another opportunity to respond to his love. And if, like perhaps many people here this morning, you've already done that, you've given your life to Jesus, will you choose to respond to what God is saying to you at the moment? About what the next step looks like for you in, in living for him and following Jesus day by day. What is God saying to you? Will you choose to respond his way or your way? Let's just pause and bow our heads and just think for a few moments and reflect on what we've said. What is God saying to me? What is God saying to you this morning? And that will be different for every single one of us because we're in different places in life, we're in different situations. What is God saying to you this morning? Are you listening to him? Are you responding to him? Is the truth that you know about him, that you've seen in the Bible, that you've heard about, that you, that you know about, is that, are you responding to that? Are you submitting your life? God and living for Jesus. It's encouraging this morning, or if that's a step that you need to take at whatever level, then don't harden your heart. Listen to God's voice. We're going to sing. One final song, I will worship, I will bow down, I will follow, I will give you all my worship.
So Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we want to surrender ourselves to you afresh. We want to worship you afresh this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are God, come in human form. You are our God. We love you. We worship you this morning. And we thank you for your love to us. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, primarily through the Bible, the truth of the Bible. Thank you that we see the Lord Jesus on the cross there, dying for us, proclaiming God is love. Help us to live in response to that today, in all that we do, that we might bring you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.